And as you are seated, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Matthew. Um, if you need a Bible, we encourage you to grab, go grab one right now. Um, we, as our pattern is, we go verse by verse through uh, sections of Scripture and would love for you to be able to follow along. If you ever come in and you need a Bible, pick one up in the hallway as you go in. Um, we do have a junior worship. And so if you have three and four-year-olds who'd like to go over to junior worship and they haven't been able to leave now, uh, you're invited to, to go now. Their uh, classroom is in the corner over here. And so if they'd like to participate with that, they are welcome to, uh, to depart and to go, go over there and join them. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to start this, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. This is the word of our God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, and Abuad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we read this. We might read this and think, why are we reading this and why are we, how are we going to work through this? But Father, we all have history. We all have a story. This has brought us to where we are today. And Father, that's true of your son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the son of God, eternally existent with you, but, but, but in time present in coming into this world as our Savior. Father, his history is a story. And as we work through that, I pray that you'd help us to see things about ourselves about our own stories, our own place in this world, and see things about your kingdom and Christ the King and our place under his rule, Father, that you be glorified. And so, Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us and lead us. We're thankful that you will um, and that you've already drawn near. Help us, Father, to, to hear your word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, something is going to rule your life. 
And as uh, you are here today, we are here today, uh, you know, you have probably made that God. God, you've said, was going to be the rule and director of my life. That's why we gather together, is to say, you know, we come under God to lead us and to guide us. Um, But there are other things that are always trying to get authority and influence over our lives. Things uh, that sometimes we even let rule over them. I mean, it could be the opinion of others, wanting to have others' good opinion of ourselves. It could be our own passions, our own desires, the imagination of what might make a good life. It might be that we, uh, we let the views of the elites of our land rule over us. And, you know, the world wants control over our hearts and minds. It wants to steer our hearts and minds in any other direction other than God. Because the world and the people in power in the world, they know that if they can steer us away from God, they know they can more easily control us. That is why oppressive governments have hated the gospel, because they know of the power and the freedom that exists in knowing the truth of the gospel. Tyrants hate it. The world knows that if it can get you to be a consumer, to rise you up in individualism, to let your passions run free, to overwhelm you with a sense of shame, or to buy into their perspective of the world, then you will do what they want you to do. The world wants us to love a temporary kingdom, a kingdom that may last even just a few hours if we give into it at times, or maybe it's a few weeks, months, years, maybe even a lifetime, but not an eternal kingdom. Now, on the other hand, God has established his own kingdom. It is a kingdom that's based on his goodness, his justice, his love, and it is a kingdom that lasts forever. So we're starting off on a sermon series that's going to take us through Matthew chapters 1 through 7. That'll take us about through the springtime as we work through those things. And the title of the series that I gave to it is A New Rule for Life. And that's because as we look in these first chapters of Matthew, they are charged with the message of Jesus inaugurating a new kingdom. There's a new kingdom, there's a new king, there's a new rule, a new rule of life. Now, this word of the kingdom is Jesus's emphasis right from the beginning of his ministry. His first public words, the first words that he said in his sermon are recorded in Matthew 4, 17, when he says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, so we see right at the very beginning, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message he is bringing into the world. And if you jump down to verse Matthew 4, 23, there's a summary of what his preaching entailed, and it was the proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, that is, that is the rule of God in this world, the rule of God that we see where we see his justice, we see his goodness, we see his love, we see it built around his, his good law, uh, we see it in mercy, and we see it through the lives of people that God is, is working through and changing, transforming by the gospel. And so that's one of the big themes that we have in Matthew. One of the big themes is the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of, God, of heaven is at hand, and we need to prepare for it. There's a second theme, though, that goes along with this um, theme of the kingdom, That's because every kingdom needs to have a king, right? A ruler. 
who governs over that kingdom, who cares for his people, who sets the agenda of that kingdom. And so as we look at these early chapters of Matthew, one thing that we're going to see how, is how Jesus is king of the Jews. He's king of God's people. He's king of this kingdom of heaven. He is the good ruler who leads people into the blessings of God. Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, is commonly thought as the gospel that is written for Jewish people. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew has, has a strong defense of this kingdom of God and Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. If the Jewish people of their time were going to believe in Jesus as Messiah, they would demand evidence that he was the one who was promised, that he was the one who would come to be their deliverer. What was the evidence? What was the proof that he was this one? And, and the book of Matthew makes a case that Jesus is that Messiah by showing that he is rightly the king of the Jewish people. We see this right from the genealogy, which we just read. We also, we see comparative things inside of our own lives. Uh, you know, we, especially when we talk about rulers, um, you know, but it's a little bit different. I mean, we have a presidential election coming up, right? I mean, it's next year. This year is an important local elections. Um, next year is an important presidential election and also for other congressional seats and those things. Um, you already know that because, you know, you see people trying to get a seat at the debates, you know, you see the debates of this person, this person. So the debates is, is this person even eligible in order to be, uh, to run for president? You know, we see requirements that are there. We see requirements of um, being a certain age, requirements of being born in the U United States of America, requirements of not having a felony. Uh, you know, to move along, they need certain signatures. They need certain levels of, of approval. They need certain public support in, or in order to even get on the stage um, for a debate, much less to be the candidate on election day. And so we're, we're thinking about their qualifications. We're thinking about their agenda. We're thinking about the energy which they would bring to leadership. We think about the beliefs and the convictions that they would uh, lead us with. Those are some of the qualifications that we might look to for our own president. But the final qualification for the president of our own country is who gets the most votes in the electoral college on that election day. But the ancients don't work like that. Well, there were kingdoms. The kings were not selected by a uh, democratic process. Um, you know, kings were first established by their own conquering and winning of that kingdom, and then that royal um, dynasty, which had passed down from the father to the son to the son. So the kings were part of a royal line. People did not get to pick their king. They needed to recognize that royal line. They needed to see God's providence in selecting their leader, and there was an honor that was given to that. So if there's a kingdom of God, then there's going to be a king. Not a king because we put him there or voted him there, but he is a king by God's appointment. God has set up his king, and we recognize that. So that's another big part of Matthew. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So we have a kingdom, we have a king, but you also have a new rule, a new rule of life. Because there is a way to live in a kingdom. The way to live in a nation. There's certain allegiances, certain commitments that are part of that. And those allegiances and commitments will be upheld by citizens. You know, it makes them um, good citizens of that, uh, of that commonwealth. Um, to do otherwise makes them disloyal to the king, the kingdom, and the people around them. Now, this kingdom 
the primary rule of this kingdom is the gospel. It's the rule of the gospel. I mean, it started in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ and giving himself to establish it. It is built upon love and God's forgiving uh, of his people and drawing them into it. We see Jesus' death, his resurrection, his sitting at the right hand of power. But in all these things, he shows us the model of the rule of that kingdom. And so while the rules of so many kingdoms are given to control people for the benefit of those who are in charge, that the rule of the gospel is done to bring glory to God and to set his people free to live in the way they were created to live. There's a freedom that comes under this new rule. All right, so we're going to see more of this through our series. We're going to talk about, the, you know, there's a kingdom, there's a king, and there's a rule. We're going to see that as we work through um, Matthew uh, chapters 1 through 7. But today we want to focus on of those three things, we'll focus on that king, the king's come, because that is how Matthew starts his, his gospel. Because again, Jewish people were going to demand, what gives him a right to be Messiah? Who, who would ever say that he would be king of the Jews? Well, Matthew, from his very first um, verse here, starts off by showing the genealogy of Christ, the legitimacy of Christ as Christ and Messiah. So, we'll look at some of that terminology. If you look at verse 1, and I just want to mention, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's seeking to establish. If you look down to verse 16, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called the Christ. This word Christ is the same as the word Messiah. You know, so to say Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah is saying the same thing. To say uh, Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ is to say the same thing. And part of this being Christ, part of being Messiah is that he, he demonstrates being this, this Messiah or, or Savior in three ways. It talks about him being a prophet, bringing God's word to us. About being a priest of reconciling us to God and praying for us. But also in him being a king who rules over his people. He wins the people to himself, and he rules and he governs his kingdom. That's where Matthew starts in showing that Jesus is king by this genealogy. All right, so let's work through our three points that you see listed inside of your bulletin. The first thing we want to see is Jesus is the crown of God's plan. Jesus is the crown of God's plan. If you look at verse 1, it's an overview to the whole genealogy. All of it's summarized just right in that very section where you see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three words are important there, right? Three names are there. Jesus, David, and Abraham, right? Reverse chronological order. And then you see verses 2 through 16 all just fills in the gaps between those uh, three names. And then, uh, and then verse 17 gives a conclusion to it all. So now why are those three names important? They show that Jesus is in line of God's great promises and his plans for the world. Right? He's, he's in line with it. He is the crowning uh, achievement of it. He is the end of it. He's the one who it all was pointing to. We can start with Abraham. Way back in ancient history, before the nation of Israel even existed, God chose a people um, for his own to be his own people. He chose Abraham. We could read about that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God chose Abraham to bless the world and to be a blessing to the world. How was he going to bless the world? How was he going to be a blessing to it? It was through his descendants, namely through one descendant, 
his seed, who is Jesus Christ. See, that's where Matthew comes in. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the descendant of God, who, or the descendant of Abraham, who brings the blessings of God into our world. Things that have been promised for thousands of years come to fruit through Jesus' arrival into the world. The second name that's mentioned is the name David. And if you know the story of David, you, you'll know that David was recognized as, as Israel's greatest king. All the kings after him were measured against him. And so by showing that Jesus is a descendant of David, he shows that Jesus is of royal descent. This is the genealogy of kings. It really starts um, all the way in verse 2 because it says Abraham talks about was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, God um, even gave a kingly promise to this person of Judah. If you look at Genesis 49.10, there was a prophecy, again, giving thousands of years before Christ ever came that said this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. God here, right here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 49, says that the, that the, the, kings, of Judah, the kings of Israel would come from this line of Judah. And then later on, David himself, the greatest king of all. He would come from this tribe of Judah. And then David would have a son, his son Solomon, and so on, all the way down to Joseph, who was Jesus' father. And Jesus comes into this line, brought into uh, Joseph's family by, by this adoption. We, we, we know the Christmas story. Jesus was born of a virgin. He did not have an earthly father. His human body being a miracle from God. And Joseph... In this, um, in this genealogy, in this royal line, shows that um, Jesus is part of that line. It's the royal dynasty of Israel. A list of kings as they could have been all the way down to Jesus. You see how it was interrupted. If you look at verses 11 and 12, we see the interruption. There was a Babylonian captivity. The, it seemed that the kingdom um, of, of Israel ceased to exist, that the kings would be no more. But as you can look through this and say, no, they recognize who would be that person, who would be that person. And all the way down to Jesus, and we see his legitimacy as king of God's people. That's because God had promised David that he would always have a son on the throne. If you turn your Bible over to 2 Samuel, it's, almost, it's worth highlighting inside your Bible if you haven't. 2 Samuel, you might have to look in the table of contents if you don't know your Bible well. But it's worth seeing this because you can see that thousands of years before, or, or over a thousand years before Jesus came, there was a promise to David that Jesus fulfills. I mean, we know the promises of like Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We know the promise that Jesus would be born of a virgin. We, we know of the prophecies that he would bear sins. Well, this is a really interesting one. Second Samuel chapter 7, especially in verse 12, it says this, when, where God speaks to David while he is king. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now we might think, oh, that's Solomon. That's his son. He's going to have his own kingdom after him. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Oh, Solomon did that. He built a temple. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be into a father. He shall be a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom, speaking to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ah, forever, right? Solomon, he was going to die. He couldn't live forever. In fact, the kingdom of Israel itself seemed to have a temporary uh, sense as it was conquered by um, the, the, the Babylonians. It's important to see that no one could fulfill that forever until Jesus came. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascendance into heaven shows that he could be the one who answered this kingly um, promise that's made here. And this is really important because the time that, by the time that Matthew was writing this, it had been 600 years since Israel had had a king on the throne. 600 years. And yet God's faithfulness, his patience over time, shows that he would fulfill this promise a promise of a king to his people. And a promise to a king to his people is that we're brought into that people by faith. And so by mentioning Abraham and David, Matthew shows us that Jesus fulfills these ancient prophecies. So I, I really want you to come up with two things as we look at this. Uh, the first thing is I want you to be convinced that Jesus uh, fits into God's plan of history. It has always been moving that way. I want you to just marvel at the plans of God. In fact, if you want one of the great evidences of the, the, the authority of the Bible and its reliability, as we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, including prophecies like this, and we see how they were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Things were perfectly fulfilled in him, and it gives us an evidence that God wrote this book. God gave it to us. But a second thing I want you to take away from this is a delight in Jesus as king. You know, recently, um, King Charles was inaugurated. King Charles III was inaugurated as King of England. And maybe you did the same thing I did as you look at like their, he has their royal line, right? And you could look at like who's in and who's out. There's all this drama with it. So people drop out all the time. Well, now this guy's out, like who's in and his place if something should happen. And, and how does that all work down, down the line? But, you know, it's reminded to us of like the British and a lot of the people around the world just, they, they love this royalty, they love this royalty. My mom, she grew up in England, and she tells me about the time that she, her father would get her up early, really early in the morning, uh, because Queen Elizabeth was going to be inaugurated that day. And, and the people were lining the streets in order to see them go. And she was a little girl, and so she was really tired. She didn't want to be there. But, um, but then, you know, later she realized something big happened, and for the rest of her life, just a delight. I was there when I saw the queen. I was there on the day the queen was inaugurated over England before her 70-year reign there. There's a light that the citizens of a kingdom have in their king. There's a delight that they have in their royals. Their hearts rejoice. And it's especially true when we know the king of God's people, this king of heaven, knowing his love, seeing his glory, you know, seeing the benefit of, of the way he uses his, his, his power. He uses it for the good of his people. When people see this, you know, that's, that's what causes them to swear allegiance to Christ as king. That's what causes them to take up their cross and to follow him because they know of his love. Do you know that love? Do you know that power? He's a king. So we see him as the crown of history. Second thing we want to look at is Jesus and the people that God uses. And we see this especially in verses 2 through 16. Uh, as you look through it, there is a list of names. And I'm not going to go through all of it. Um, it's a pretty ordinary gene genealogy. But there are surprising things that we need to pay special attention to. 
And one of the things that really stands out to us is that five women are included in this genealogy. Most ancient genealogies wouldn't include uh, the mention of women so significant that they are there. And as we look at them, especially the women, but we see the trouble um, that they experience in this life. You know, so as we look through that list, this genealogy, there is, there's no one who's perfect on this list except for Jesus, right? The very first name Abraham, you know, we know of his lies that he told during his life. Uh, you could go down and you see the word Jacob. Uh, Jacob was a deceiver. The, one of the next names is Judah, and Judah sold his own brother into slavery. Jump down a list, jump down a bit, and you see David. David was a polygamist and a murderer. Uh, Solomon, he worshiped false gods, and many of his descendants that are listed in that list of kings did also. Right? Every one of these names, apart from Jesus, was affected by sin. And then we see the stories of the five women. They really stick out with what uh, Matthew writes. Tamar, she's the first of the five women who's mentioned. She's mentioned in verse 3, and her story's in Genesis 38. But, you know, she's a woman who suffered greatly after the the death of her husband. Um, She was abandoned by her family, um, and she chose a manipulative path, which ended up in her pregnancy, but also her security. You know, God redeemed that story. She had a baby Perez that's mentioned in the line of Jesus. The second story is mentioned in verse 5 with Rahab being mentioned. And you might remember her story from uh, the book of Joshua in chapter 2. Uh, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Israel was looking to conquer Jericho. And she saw the hand of God working in this nation. So she hid the spies on the roof. And because of her trust in the Lord, her caring for the spies, she was the, the, the one person with her family who was allowed, allowed to survive the siege of Jericho. She became part of this nation. We see her name there. Next woman who's mentioned is also in verse 5 is Ruth. Hers is a story of redemption as we see her um, marrying a, a, a man of Israel and then that man dying. Um, she was from a foreign country named Moab. And, and when her husband died, she lived in Moab. She traveled into Israel to go be with her mother-in-law. You can read all about it in the book of Ruth. Um, so here she is. She's widowed. She's in a foreign land, um, in the land of Israel. It's not her, her country. And in his mercy, God brought a man, brought a man Boaz into her life. Uh, they were married. They had a child who God included in the line of Jesus. The fourth woman who's mentioned isn't even given a name. You could see her uh, mentioned in verse 6, where we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we know her name is Bathsheba. And King David, he saw her bathing on the roof of her house and overcome with his own lust. He brought her into his home. He had relations with her, and she became pregnant. Because she was married to Uriah, David had Uriah killed before making Bathsheba one of his many wives. And they, uh, she lost her first child with David to miscarriage, but she uh, later carried David's son Solomon born as one of the great kings of Israel. Again, God redeemed her and her story and included her in the genealogy of Jesus. The fifth woman who's mentioned here was Mary, of course. Mary, the young virgin, trusted faithfully in the Lord God. And many might have wondered at the time if she was as scandalous as the other women, but here you have this young woman who trusted in the Lord. Really, that's what you see with these women who are mentioned, that uh, many experiencing great difficulty and hardships and suffering, and yet trusted and turned to God in the end. They all trusted God. 
At that time, a woman wouldn't have even been able to act as a witness in a trial. But here we have their lives bearing witness to the, to the, the genealogy of Jesus in his place as king. Women were the first to see Jesus uh, resurrected from the dead, bearing witness to his resurrection from the dead. Right? These are four women who had their lives shattered by the fall, shattered by sin and death in the world, and yet they had a part in this royal line of Jesus. So why include them here? Again, this really stands out, and I think it stands out for a reason. As I think that Matthew is writing this to encourage us, to encourage us especially when we think we don't belong, especially when we think we don't fit in. It encourages us and makes us think that maybe I can have a part in Jesus' story. If, if, if these people did, then maybe I can too. To see the scope of God's grace, the people he includes, the stories he redeems. First of all, we see that God is pleased to invite both men and women into his kingdom. And we may not think much of that today, but in the ancient world and in many religions, even today, it was a bigger deal. By naming these women, God reminds us that Jesus is a savior who came from us, he came for us, and he came for all of us. The second thing we see is that God was pleased to invite people from all different nations. These are not all Jewish people. It's a reminder to us that Jesus Christ is a savior for all people, for all nations. It really spurs on our mission's focus to the world. And third, we see how God is pleased to use and even redeem the most shameful parts for stories and the most broken people for his own purposes of grace. Despite the background of any of these names, they each have a new meaning as are connected to the royal line of Jesus. I've used this illustration before, but just use it again. I, like, I think about Star Wars, the movie Star Wars. And so I'm a Gen Xer, and so the, I saw the first of the movies I saw in the order was Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. And so I know you younger ones, maybe you watch it from 1 to 6. Well, that's not how they were created, and you know that, I'm sure. But 4, 5, and 6, if you ask them who they are about, they were all about Luke Skywalker, right? And so here is this you know, young man who had to be trained the force and to over, eventually overcome the evil empire and the emperor, right? And then later in my life, um, Star Wars 1 through 3 comes out. And then I realize, oh, it's almost like they're changing the whole focus of the story because it seems like now it's about Anakin, right? It's Anakin, the guy who would later become Darth Vader. And so it sees him growing up and getting power, and then he turns to the dark side, and eventually he comes to his senses, and he, and he um, gets rid of the emperor. He's, he's the guy at the end. And then they created seven through nine, which kind of confuses me, and then there's a whole universe out there, which, which kind of confuses the whole thing. But my point is this, is that, you know, just as, you know, you threw those first three onto the later, onto the four, five, and six, it kind of change the story, kind of change it, and it helped us think through the story in a, a little bit different way, but in the same way for your life, you know, you might see these things happen, I'm a nobody, I have these failures in my life, um, you know, how could God use me with these things, and, and then you come back and, and you look forward in time, and you say, oh wait, no, God was doing something that whole time, he's changing that, he's, he's, he's adjusting, he's, he's incorporating that into the, the, the story of his providential plan for the world, Right? We see him using us in ways that we didn't know. If we're in Christ, we look at our past and remember that God is rewriting that history. It's not that he's changing the past, right? But he's including it in something good 
So instead of being angry or instead of being lustful, instead of being bitter or an idolater or a gossip, our lives are now defined by being in Christ. We're beloved. The Bible even has the audacity to call us saints. Yeah, that's something we are. We are redeemed. It reminds us of that. And so th- those things were things that God used to bring us where we are and something he uses to show the glories of his grace. Matthew. I think Matthew, um, as I read through Matthew, I, I, I think about his own encounter with Christ. Because Matthew would have been one of the outcasts of his day. You know, he may have had a lot of money because he was a tax collector. He earned a lot. He was probably wealthy. He was probably rich. But he was an outcast. Tax collectors worked for the, the empire of Rome. And they were seen as traitors of their own people. And so he would not have belonged. He would have been outside of the religious community of the day. And he was rejected. Maybe Matthew had that same feeling that many of us have, that have done bad, that God couldn't use me. Maybe you've had that feeling. You've sinned greatly. You couldn't be forgiven. But what we see here recorded in the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that outcasts like Matthew can find acceptance in the gospel that we can. So we've seen Jesus in the crown of history. We've seen um, the people that God uses in this. The third thing we want to look at is the Jesus and the freedom of forgiveness. So I want to focus on verse 17 here. So look, if you would, look down at verse 17 with me. Where it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew, he uses this special technique to show us something important about Jesus. So in doing this genealogy, he uses some names, but he leaves, he leaves a lot of names out. Anybody who were to study this or who know it, even the first century, would know that certain names are mentioned and certain names are left out. He's not just leaving out the embarrassing names or something. No, he has a special purpose for it, to show that Christ is king. But to show us something more, that he can give us rest in a world of chaos. That Jesus gives us rest in a world of chaos. That's what kings do, right? They bring order out of chaos. They bring peace. So if you think about it from the Jewish perspective, it had been 600 or so years that they have not had a nation. They were controlled by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. Uh, They had a certain chaos. They had a lack of liberty and a lack of freedom. Um, They only knew the constraint of being a controlled people. What Matthew does here is he uses a math technique to show that Jesus brings this peace. It's kind of like a creative math. Some of you like to do creative math, right? Just like, hey, teacher, when you just approach it, at least it's creative. It might not be right, but it's creative. Jesus, when Matthew writes this, he's showing something important about uh, Jesus bringing peace. So the use of numbers inside the Bible, you know that the number seven is that perfect number, right? And so God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Um, Seventh day is the day of rest. It's the day of gladness. It's the day we can rest from our works. Day we are, we can remember we're saved by grace, by the work of Jesus. And if you look at the math here, and it's a pretty easy math, don't be intimidated, um, you can see that between Abraham and David, what does it say? There were 14 generations, right? How many groups of seven are there? Two, right? So we have two groups of seven, two sevens, two, two perfections, if you will. All right, then you notice, what was it between um, David and then the, and then the, um, the deportation to Babylon? Oh, another 14 generations. So two more sets of seven, right? So how many do we have now? 
Four, okay, so we have four groups of seven. All right, and then you have from uh, the deportation of Babylon to Jesus, another 14 years, two more groups of seven. So how many do we have now? Six, okay, so six, but six isn't the perfect number, right? What is the perfect number? Seven, so people are gonna be reading this and they're gonna be thinking, oh, what's the seventh seven? What's the completion, the perfection of it all? And what's the answer? It's Jesus, it's Christ. You know, he is the seventh seven. You know, he is that final completion of God's history. But, but more than that, you know, seven times seven is what? 49, and one more is 50. And if you know some of the, what, what the, the Old Testament talks about, something called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, and it's, a, it's something that would happen every 50th year. It was a special celebration, and the Jubilee year, all debts would be forgiven, all Israelite slaves would be set free. The Israelite people would be able to experience the liberty of the Lord and the freedom that he had secured for them. Leviticus chapter 25 talks about that. You can see it on the screen there. Leviticus 25 says this, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so the time of the seven weeks of years shall be given you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property. And each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows for itself, nor gather the grapes for the, uh, from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Jubilee, the forgiveness of debt, the freedom from slavery. As Michael Card sings, jubilee, jubilee, Jesus is that jubilee, debts forgiven, slaves set free, Jesus is our jubilee. So what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus leads us into the jubilee. The kingdom of heaven is just on the other side of Jesus, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's through faith in Christ, union with Christ, we become participants in the kingdom of God that he is establishing. And he leads it through forgiveness. He leads it through his own death and his own resurrection on the cross. Jesus is the one who leads us into that jubilee. If you look over at Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus' first sermon that's recorded in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 4, Starting in, verse, um, starting in verse 18, where he's quoting the Old Testament. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, He rolled the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. All the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He fulfilled it, right? Jesus is the good news. Liberty, sight, freedom from oppression, the year of the Lord's favor. He has brought rest. You remember how he rules his kingdom. He rules it in self-sacrifice and love, securing that rule by giving his life for his people. I mean, he loves his people. He is seeking that which is good for his people. And the fact is, because he is the son of God, he can secure your good. Any other promises, the other so-called rulers of this world want to make to bring you under their control, to bring you under uh, that way of thinking, that pattern which is contrary to God, that other kingdom 
which leads in a different way. You know, they can make promises. They hold out, you know, big opportunities for you. But can they truly secure your good? Do they carry the heritage of the Son of God, the one who's fulfilled prophecies, the one who's endured forever? You won't find rest, the rest that God promises in any other way. Some of us might think, if I work hard enough, I'll get what I've always wanted. If I work hard enough and I'm a good person, then I'll know peace and freedom. Well, that doesn't work. People say, if just I do what uh, these political leaders say I should do, or this college professor says I should do, or this online influencer, yeah, they're leading me away from God, but you know, if I just I do what they say I should do, well, then I'll be okay. Well, that's not coming under the freedom that Jesus brings. We enter into Jesus' rest by faith. We know peace by faith. We know true freedom when we know Jesus Christ as king. Matthew wants us to see that. We may want to work for it. And when we do, we often wonder if we've ever done enough. It creates this hamster wheel of performance because we can never know. But Jesus is the true path to peace. That's what he says in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 28. Where he invites us to come to him by faith. He invites us to come to him and find peace. And you won't find it unless you go to him first. Look at verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you tired of trying to prove yourself? Are you tired of listening to the so-called experts who are offering these alternative ways of living, who are directing you away from the word of God, away from his rule? Have you tried sin out? You know that it leads you exhausted. Jesus offers himself. Go to him for life. Go through him for life. Go through him for that jubilee, that liberty, and that peace. He's the king. He's the redeemer. He's the peace giver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus is our perfect Savior. And we we see it in his birth. We see it in his miracles. We see it in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we thank you for sending him. Father, thank you that he shows us your love. He shows us your power over sin. He brings us close to you again. Father, you show us that no matter how bad our past may look or how insignificant that we feel at times that you offer new life in Jesus Christ, we thank you for that wonderful gift. Father, I pray for those who are here who feel far from you that you would comfort their hearts with the nearness of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who don't believe in you, that they would put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, for those of us who are, have set up another king in our lives, ourselves, some other influencer, some other kingdom, Father, help us to see the rule of Christ and how it leads to a life of love, of goodness, self-control, Father, and that we would point to Jesus Christ as being the King, the King who brings liberty to all who would look to him. Father, we ask you for your help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us uh, finish our time and praise.